Welcome to Left, Right, and Unwanted, the podcast where people across the political spectrum discuss ideas and politics. I'm Lauren, and I'm the left. I'm Morgan, and I'm the right. I'm Luke, and I'm the unwanted. Matthew Desmond is a sociology professor at Princeton. His interests include poverty in America, domestic policy, racial inequality, and public housing. His piece for the 1619 Project, Capitalism, examines how slavery and plantation practices may have contributed to modern American capitalism. If someone came up to you in the street and said, what does the word capitalism mean? What would your answer be? Like super simple terms, I guess I'd say trade is run privately as opposed to being uh, controlled by the state. The ways I've heard it defined partially is by the question who owns the means of production or where are the means of production? The definition you hear thrown around a lot is that it's an economic system in which trade is controlled by private owners, private citizens, instead of being state regulated. To me, it's one of those terms that has really lost its usefulness because it means different things to different people. You have to stop and define it every time you're using it. Maybe we should just use a different word because I have used it. I have heard it to refer to sort of an idealized free market where you have private ownership of the means of production and the coordination of production is also private. Whereas you have fascism with private ownership of the means of production, but public uh, coordination of production and and then socialism where both owns means of production and the coordination is is publicly owned. But I've also heard it, and and if that's the definition that we're gonna use, America is is far from a, a pure capitalist country. On the other hand, I've also heard capitalism used to refer to just sort of our current economic system or the, the economic system that really became big after the downfall of mercantilism. I think, believe the term originated as a slur um, against the, the current economic system or, or against the economic system at the time back in the 1800s. He, he talks about a lot of these things, a lot of things in this article that he calls capitalism that are government decisions. And so if you're just talking about our current economic system, then it makes sense to call it capitalism. And that's why some people when they're talking about sort of idealized free market system, they call it freed markets, implying that the market currently is not free. And he's using it here, like I said, I think to refer to just sort of the current way America is. And so if that's the case, I have less of a disagreement with him because like I said, throughout this article, he's going to point to a lot of things that I'm going to say are caused by government intervention, not laissez-faire. And I think that's evident in his introduction, because he uses it to answer the question, like if you give people examples of inequality in America or things related to production and wealth that are just plain unfair, the line he says is if you explain this to people and say, why is this the way that it is? The answer you're going to hear is this is a capitalist society. And I think what he means by that is this is a society designed where some people will have more than others. That's what more and more people are using it as now, as a catch-all and kind of how society functions currently. He talks about Martin Screlly's buying this anti-parasitic drug, Daraprim, and then jacking the price up. Screlly's quote is, no one wants to say it, no one's proud of it, but this is a capitalist society, a capitalist system, and capitalist. The reason Screlly's able to do that is because of intellectual property rights, which is a misnomer because they're not actual property, but they're government-granted monopolies. There's no such thing as scarcity when it comes to ideas. And the Supreme Court even agreed in Oil States v. Greens Energy that intellectual property is not property. 
it is a government grant of privilege. So the reason he's able to raise the price to 750 a pill is because no one else is legally allowed to make that drug. And I mean, the reason that drugs cost so much in America is two reasons, both governmental in nature. The first is that the cost to develop a new drug is 985 million to $2.6 billion due to the FDA in order to, in, and, and that the worry is that if there's no intellectual property rights, no one will make drugs because you can't make your money back after you make it. I think that's not necessarily true because there's lots of drugs on the shelves that where patents have expired, but people still buy name brand like Tylenol, Aleve, Advil. But the FDA has a lot of problems. Um, they have something called first in, first out of applications for generics rather than focusing on cost or need. So there's a real backlog in terms of making a drug generic. You can also just slightly tweak your formula and keep your patent for longer. Medicaid uh, requires the lowest domestic price. So if you're a pharmaceutical company, because so many people are in Medicaid, you want to make that money. So if your drug sells for $20, Medicaid will buy it for $20. But as soon as you start selling it for $5 to anyone, Medicaid gets to buy it for $5. So you can't cut the price for people in need. You can't cut the price for people without insurance because then you're going to lose a bunch of revenue because of the government this government provided health insurance. Uh, and Americans subsidize global drug research as most drugs are developed first for the US market. And then the, the problem with the FDA is also something called overstringency. So there's a balance. I mean, you want, you want to make sure that drugs are safe, but if you spend too long making sure the drug is safe, then it never hits the market. And then people are dying that the drug could have saved. If you, if you rush to market and there's problems, people would die. But if you never bring it to market, then people will also die. So there's a balance. And how do you know the FDA is at that balance? They have a couple problems. The first is that the FDA requires drugs to be safe and effective. It's, it's, it's pretty easy to prove a drug is safe. It's a lot harder to prove it's effective because then you have to have, you know, placebos and double blind trials and all these things. But if the point of the FDA is to keep drugs from killing people, then all you have to do is make sure the drug is safe. Yeah. I mean, he talks a lot about pharmaceutical industry, which is far from a free market. So Joel Rogers talks about low road capitalism, where it, and, and this is a quote from that from the article. In a capitalist society that goes low, wages are depressed as com businesses compete over the price, not the quality of goods. And that, that's just not true. That the only competition in the market currently in the, United, in the United States is the price of goods. Like everyone shops at Walmart and just buys the cheapest name brand thing they can find. Some people do, but not everyone. And in fact, it doesn't even make sense because most goods are not made in the United States. Most goods are made overseas and shipped to multiple markets. So it's unlike, so it's not like China when they're making whatever it is, is making a version for the US that's really cheap and crappy, and then a version for Europe that's way nicer. It's, they're, they're making the same product and shipping it to multiple countries. And then as far as products produced in the US, which you would think, according to this view, would have the most, would have the lowest quality and the lowest price, Statistia surveyed like 43,000 people from 52 countries on their perception of products. And the United States was eighth in quality, level with France and Japan, and above various developed countries like Norway, Australia, New Zealand, Denmark, the Netherlands. Couldn't you argue, though, that the fact that we've outsourced a significant amount of our production comes from a cost standpoint, not a quality standpoint, though? Do you think that's kind of what this is meant here? Yeah, no, I, I can see where you're coming from with that. In his definition of 
low road capitalism. I wanted to see some explanation for how workers are incentivized through punishment, because that I thought was also part of this that may be true for some industries. But on the whole, I think most working adults that I talk to, I don't see the punishment incentivization. Actually, several economists did research on this, and they find that the percentage of employees exposed to incentive pay schemes range from around 10 to 15 percent in some European countries to over 40 percent in Scandinavian countries in the U.S. And I mean, I agree. I'm sure it depends on the industry and the business. I've never worked at a place where I felt that the primary method to get, keep me working was punishment. No, or but, you'd leave. I mean, especially, I mean, especially like sort of even entry-level positions, which are not hard to find jobs in. Like, it's not hard to find your entry-level position at McDonald's or Walmart or whatever it is. It's, it's easy to, and people do bounce around to those all the time from time from place to place. So if it's, you screw up once, we'll fire you. Okay, I'm just going to go someplace else. One of the things I found in here, kind of going on in this section, he has quite a bit of data listed from OECD. So that's the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. He talks about worker rights in different nations. He talks about unions, and then he goes into firing potential in different countries. But some of the critiques I've seen for this article, and one that I kind of agree with, is when you get into measuring poverty, which he discusses a little later on, it measures relative poverty within nations, not necessarily between nations. So I don't know exactly how using this as a tool is really a fair measure when comparing the United States to other countries and not taking into account any other demographics. I sort of differentiate between inequality and poverty, where inequality is how much stuff do you have compared to other people in your country, whereas poverty is just how much stuff do you have, period. You know, do you have food? Do you have a house? Not does someone else have more food? Does someone else have a bigger house? That Those are sort of two separate concepts. The OECD defines poverty as people with less than half the median household income in that country. For instance, the United States at 17.8 has a higher OECD poverty rate than Mexico at 16.6%. But 35% of Mexico's population lives on less than $5.50 a day compared to only 2% of the people in the U.S. They also don't take into account government transfer payments, both welfare and taxes. If you account for all those, the poorest 20% of people in America consume more goods and services than the national averages for regular people in most affluent countries. So if they were their own nation, the, the lowest, the, the poorest 20% in the United States would still consume more than the average person in Canada, Greece, the United Kingdom, Sweden, Australia, Spain, Portugal, Japan, Denmark, Iceland, New Zealand. The problem I think he has is that this data forms the base of his thesis for this article. He's trying here to establish his definition of capitalism and low road capitalism in this country. But the way he does it, if we can't accept this data, it's going to be really hard. He talks about um, you know, how, how little of the United States is unionized. The thing is unions don't exist to exist. They, I mean, the point of them is to get higher wages. And the OECD also provides data for average annual wages. And so they 
hold everything a constant at a U.S. dollar purchasing power parities. So out of the 35 countries, the OECD lists, the U.S. ranks fourth. So the workers in America basically have the fourth strongest incomes in the OECD countries behind Iceland, Luxembourg, and Switzerland. And also the U.S. union law is different than European union law. So it has features like exclusive representation that European unions don't have. And people in the U.S. say are essential parts of the union system, even though Europeans don't have them. And then she also, he also talks about how the U.S. is second to last in terms of temp work, in terms of regulations. Um, but the U.S. is also the least likely among all nations to even have temporary employment. Not that many people work temp jobs. So what if it's less regulated if no one's actually working in those? So he's really trying to, I think he's trying to make the point that America has this unique free market that no, one, no other place in the world has. And I looked up a couple rankings of, you know, free markets, which countries have the freest markets in the U.S. ranges from 6th to 17th. Both of the places I found agreed that Singapore, Hong Kong, New Zealand, Australia, and Switzerland were the freest markets. And the U.S. was also behind in the other um, projection countries like Canada, Iceland, and the Netherlands. And finally, he talks about how uh, those regulations in other countries make it harder to fire workers. The problem with those regulations is it makes you less likely to hire workers, especially those viewed as a gamble if you know you're going to be stuck with them for a long time. So you're not going to want to take a chance on someone who's young and inexperienced or maybe messed up in the past. And for example, France, which has very strong worker protections in terms of making it very hard to fire people, one in four French youth is employed and youth is defined as up to 25 or 30. So this isn't like teens, like this is people our age, one out of every four people is unemployed, which is not a good situation. I just think it's a little weird if we're examining how something that happened in America affects modern American capitalism to then make the entry point a comparison to other countries right now. He says nearly two average American lifetimes, 79 years, have passed since the end of slavery, only two. It is not surprising that we can still feel the looming presence of this institution, which helped turn a poor fledgling nation into a financial colossus. And then what he launches into is a quick sample of cotton on plantations, how it's produced, what it's used for. And then he goes into kind of what happens when you plant cotton in a field over and over and makes the case for why plantations and labor was as big as it was. There's a line in what you just discussed that I thought is massively stupid. And the line is, it's not surprising that we can still feel the looming presence of this institution, slavery, which helped turn a poor fledgling nation into a financial colossus. So his argument, which is very similar to the argument of the Southerners a long time ago, is that slavery makes a nation wealthy. Slavery is just this, you want to get wealthy, just have slavery in your nation. Whereas that's not the case. Slavery makes everyone poor because the slaves don't have any, I mean, you're basically taking all the human capital of slaves, you know, all their ideas, anything mental that they could contribute and getting rid of it and just turning them into pack animals and not allowing them to go to where they're to where their skills are, not allowing them to come up with ideas to improve things. Slavery makes everyone poor. Slavery doesn't make a country rich. And oh, the only problem with it is this moral quandary. It's just a bad system. It makes everyone, except for the few slave owners, a lot poorer because it's, it's not as productive as free labor. I cannot emphasize enough how stupid I think that sentence is. He, he talks about how the, the land cycle of cotton talks about how cotton needs a lot of land. 
It needs a lot of land. And they solved its land shortage by expropriating millions of acres from Native Americans, often with military force, acquiring Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee, and Florida. It then sold that land on the cheap to politically connected land speculators. I don't see how government running people off the land with the military and then selling to politically connected people is capitalistic. This is the essence of like central planning. Well, no, this almost fits in a little bit better with our state simplification. Again, because we're looking at really kind of the opposite of forestry since we're talking about felling trees to make room for cotton, but it's state city rural planning. This belief that slavery made America wealthy is based on this guy, uh, Edward Baptist's calculations of the impact of slavery on the economy. And the biggest problem with his statistics is that they're wrong. It's based on accounting errors, double and triple counting and transaction costs and all kinds of things. So cotton before the Civil War was about 5% of the antebellum economy. So a, a big part, I mean, 5% is one in 20, but it's roughly comparable in size to the Northern dominated railroad sector. It's not everything in America depends on it. This was actually the argument of the South. They had this theory called King Cotton, which was the idea that cotton drove the engine of America's economy. And it, it was a big part, but it wasn't the end all be all of the American economic system. Well, and it's hard to predict exactly what would have happened if slavery wasn't a thing, wasn't an institution. Um, I mean, we can make guesses and predictions based off of data if you're looking at the right data. Yeah, if people weren't using slaves, who knows what what would have happened. Right. I mean, they were using slaves to, to pick the the whatever out of cotton and the name of, and then Eli would invent the cotton gin. But who's to say that uh, you know, one of these people out in the fields wouldn't have had the idea for some kind of machine that could pick cotton, which I'm sure they use now, but they just never brought it up because they're not going to benefit from it. They're just a slave. I mean, who, who knows how many good ideas and innovations and all these were wasted because of slavery. He begins the analogy of plantations and then connecting them to modern corporations. And I had a lot of, I guess, beef with this section is the way I'd like to, I had some interesting things here. So I'll just summarize what he says. He begins by saying, perhaps you're reading this work, maybe at a multinational corporation that runs like a soft purring engine. And then he describes a chain of command. He says, you report to someone and someone reports to you. Everything is tracked, recorded, and analyzed via vertical reporting systems, double entry record keeping, and precise qualification. And the one thing I'll say about this assertion is that I believe he is right that data takes precedence nowadays. I don't know a single person who doesn't in some way, shape, or form have to track data as part of their job. So that I will give him, I completely agree. Data is important, it's trackable, it's a statistic that people like to see. Where I'm lost a little bit in this analogy, he connects by saying, um, when an accountant depreciates an asset to save on taxes or when a mid-level manager spends an afternoon filling in rows and columns on an Excel spreadsheet, they are repeating business procedures whose roots twist back to slave labor camps. And that's not right. <laughs> and I say that because yes, of course, they can have things in common, but the argument he's making here is that plantation owners and managers created 
the systems we see in business today. And that's objectively false. They were useful, but those systems actually date quite a bit further back. And he goes into, he quotes a book um, called Accounting for Slavery by Caitlin Rosenthal. And I found an excerpt of the book because I was actually interested in what it said because I've seen um, accounts that argue it really shouldn't be connected to strengthen his work. And one thing the author says in her book is that this is not an, or an origin story. I did not find a simple path where slaveholders paper spreadsheets evolved into Microsoft Excel. So the fact that part of this is in here to help quantify his argument, it doesn't really match with the author's intention. She acknowledges, I believe in her book, that the closest parallel that she found in writing Accounting for Slavery is that the strongest parallel comes from the idea of the task system. I'm not incredibly familiar with, but it pairs like a task and a timestamp and then with bonuses for overwork. And that she found is a possible connection, but on the whole, there really isn't definitive proof that could say today's modern business practice came from plantations. The task system was a system where rather than just you have an overseer out in the field whipping everyone all day, you basically gave all the slaves a certain amount of tasks. And then as soon as you were done with that task, you were done for the day. And so it incentivized slaves to sort of work hard and get their stuff done because then they could go do whatever they wanted to. And I, I guess that's sort of a parallel. But I mean, a lot of this stuff just seemed, and maybe it's just my lack of imagination, but a lot of this stuff is just how else would you run a business? Um, rather than giving yeah. someone a task to do. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, like, like you said, double entry bookkeeping and business measurement goes back to the Medici's and medieval Italy. I think a more interesting analysis of modern technology in the workplace is the panopticon effect, which wasn't the case with slaves, where it's, you know, with all this monitoring stuff, you can see how hard someone, especially with computer jobs, you can see how many tasks someone's completing and you never know when you're getting watched and stuff. Even the World Socialist website, like a, like I mentioned an episode or two ago, which is a you know Trotskyist um, organization, so not friendly to capitalism at all. Um, but even they thought this was just a silly uh, contention. Uh, James Oakes, a historian they're interviewing, has this quote: "They're saying, look at the ways capitalism is just like slavery, and that's because capitalism came from slavery. But there's no actual critique of capitalism in any of it. They're saying, oh my God, slavery looks just like capitalism. They had highly developed management techniques, just like we do." Slaveholders were greedy, just like capitalists. Slavery was violent, just like our society is. So there, there's a critique of violence and a critique of greed. But greed and violence are everywhere in human history, not just in capitalist societies. So there's no actual critique of capitalism as such, at least as I read it. No, that's a good point. The, art of, the article really doesn't come for capitalism at all. My assumption is the author, and looking at his body of work and his interests, my assumption is that he is not a fan of capitalism. So he wrote it from an anti-capitalist perspective and kind of assumed the reader felt similarly. Or would be ignorant enough to be swayed by his poor arguments. He talks about how, again, he quotes accounting for slavery quite a bit in here. And he, a system described where one plantation 
the owner supervises one person and another and an overseer and all these other people. And then he compares it and said it was a very advanced organization system displaying a level of hierarchical complexity equaled only by large government structures like that of the British Royal Navy. This isn't a new idea. Mm-hmm. Record keeping, bookkeeping has been around forever. It I, makes sense. Like what, yeah, like you said, what else are you going to do? Yeah, you have to keep track of things. You have to have records. And yeah, and like he mentions Thomas Affleck's plantation record and account book. It's like, Yeah. He says, it was not so much the rage of the poor white Southerner, but the greed of the rich white planter that drove the lash. The violence was neither arbitrary nor gratuitous. It was rational, capitalistic, and all part of the plantation's design. So, and the issue I have with this, I think in terms of a series of articles, number one, we said at the beginning of this, they are meant to put Black Americans more central in the American narrative, which is a place that in history, they haven't really occupied. In a piece that was written for this purpose, I think by saying that the violence was not arbitrary nor gratuitous and that it was rational. I think that comes too close to, I, I guess I'm just uncomfortable with the way he said it, like rationalizing the violence, saying that it was doled out on purpose. I think when you look at slavery, I I find most of it to be irrational. I have a problem with describing a subset of the population with their rights to bargain and, you know, move freely removed by government fiat to be described as capitalistic. I mean, I I guess he's using it in the sense of, well, it doesn't even make sense in the term of our modern um, economic system makes no sense in terms of a free market and and it also makes no sense now i mean there's nothing that prohibits other than non-compete clauses which are pretty strictly construed there's not a whole lot that prevents people from moving wherever they want taking whatever job they want uh within the same country i guess yeah it's just i mean he discusses the absolute evils of slavery which i don't think can be understated slavery was a terrible horrible thing that happened in this country But he's trying to then compare, he says in here later, this was why the fastest cotton pickers were often whipped the most. It was why punishments rose and fell with global market fluctuations. And for him to compare, like he's using this to try and compare it to modern capitalism today. I don't think that's a comparison that carries through because to translate that forward into the future is saying today's workers who get ahead, who... I don't know, do their job the best, however you'd like to put it, are going to be punished the most. And that's, I don't find that it to be doesn't, true. Yeah, it doesn't translate. I mean, Luke mentioned it earlier with, yeah, willingness to like hire people. I I don't live in fear that if I make one mistake, I'm going to get fired. And yeah, I don't think it translates. There's also this idea that he's treating slavery as monolithic throughout the whole South, when I'm sure every plantation was different or at least some, some different. And also a lot of the stuff, I mean, just how do we know? Because I'm, I'm sure not a lot of the methods for punishment were written down and a lot of the, the slaves were illiterate. So I mean, yeah, I'm sure there were oral traditions and stories that people told, but just 
I'm always skeptical whenever I hear people describing exactly what slavery like, unless it's like a former slave being like, this is what happened. I'm just like, uh, how do you know? Like, and, and even, and even that slave, I mean, that's his, that was what he, he experienced at that plantation under that, you know, owner. I mean, you hear about people, you hear people described as, you know, harsher masters than others. It's hard to get a, a picture to say, this is what slavery was like for everyone. And I'm sure there were some masters who were, I mean, you, you don't tell me that some poor uneducated guy in the South whose job is to whip slaves is never does it out of rage and only does it out of like oh. rational capitalistic. Like, oh, uh, is this going yeah. to drive profits? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. That was my issue with it. I think he's discounting the fact that at this time, the way slaves were viewed was like as less than almost as sub or below actually exactly a sub or below their master. So to say everything was rational, calculated, done with a purpose, I think that does a disservice to people who were enslaved because no, they experienced horrible things that were often done. I don't always think it was purposeful. So I guess that was my issue I was trying to say with the quote earlier. That sentence at the beginning of the paragraph we were talking where he said, there's some comfort, I think, in attributing the sheer brutality of slavery to dumb racism. Yes. I guess there's some comfort in it, but like, I do think it's also the truth. People literally didn't think black people were the same. And I mean, it was talked about in the previous article we discussed. I don't think it's, I don't think it's something that people have just made up to feel better about themselves. I think what you may be getting at is like sort of in movies, there's two types of villains. There's like the the joke, well, I guess not the joke, I'm not a good example, but there's just like the crazy rage filled person who lashes out and does stuff. And then there's like the, the calculated calm person who has a plan for everything. Mm-hmm. And I think he, I think what he may be trying to get at is like the plantation owners more like the second. So they weren't just applying violence willy nilly. Like they had a purpose for their violence and, and that makes it worse because it wasn't just, their emotions getting out of control. It was like, I know the exact amount of violence to use on this person to extract as much labor as I can before I kill them, you know? But I just, I don't think that's true. Essentially what he does in this section, we're kind of transferring out of him discussing what it was like on plantations into discussing the modern mortgage. And he says, and it's on 37, enslaved people were used as collateral for mortgages centuries before the home mortgage became the defining characteristic of middle America. In colonial times, when land was not worth much and banks didn't exist, most lending was based on human property. And then he goes on to say that in the South, in the 1700s, slaves were kind of accepted and the dominant form of, so the idea that your human property could be used to mortgage and invest in either land or more human property. Throw something that makes sense. If you have a large, if you have a ton of assets, in this case, slaves, and you need liquid cash, you're going to mortgage your big assets, I mean, which are your slaves. So, and, and this is tied to a big thing about freeing your slaves is that this made it then very basically impossible for a lot of people in the South to free their slaves, even if they had moral uh, objections to it, because if something's mortgaged, you technically don't own it anymore. So it's not your property to, just like if you have a mortgage on your house, you can't burn it down. So that's defrauding the bank. That's, that's 
an issue that a lot of people faced um, who developed moral compunctions with, with slavery. You hear that people, slaves were defined as property. And it's something that is said a lot to explain the evils of slavery. But I haven't seen very often the fact that he goes so far as to say, yes, they were, I mean, you don't really see examples of that so much. I feel like, like it's something that is said and it's something you hear over and over and it almost just kind of settles into your brain. But hearing that you could use people as collateral to purchase property and other people, I think for me at least, made that phrase a little more meaningful it's almost like slaves and slaves are treated as property just like okay to to put you in kind of the mindset more of an emotional like you know distance them from people to property type of thing but yeah to see an actual example other than i mean people talk about you know buying and selling slaves and the slave markets and stuff but it's Mm -hmm. it's out there a lot more than yeah the idea of like yes, using them as collateral because that's an asset you'd, you know, in your modern day spreadsheet, we do asset retirement lists for our work. Just, yep, there we go. Yeah, I, this, this was one of the sections I really thought actually was a helpful contribution. That I felt like I had a different perspective on it. So that, that I appreciated. I think though that a lot of the ties he tries to make to modern modern um, things don't work as well. So like collateralized, collateralized debt obligations, he talks about taking time bombs back by, I mean, CDOs, the problem with CDOs is that they were based on junk mortgages that banks were forced mm-hmm. to make because of the desire by the Clinton and then the Bush administration to get as many people buying houses as possible, even ones that shouldn't have been buying houses because they had horrible credit and no money. Um, he's trying to be like, hey, you know, the 2008 financial crisis, everyone has a negative view of that, you know, slavery, people have a negative view of that, that they're related. And there's really just not that much linkage between the two because slaves weren't collateralized and then sold on a, on a market. Cotton was, but that's, that's different because that's cotton is a, um, it wouldn't have been sold on a securities market, it would have been sold on a futures market which is a totally different thing. but And, then, and he talks about um, the Second Bank of the United States and then the state chartered banks multiplying. And I have a whole, I mean, I, I could go on a long spiel about the problems with central banking, but that's really boring to most people, so I won't. He's tying, trying to tie the South and plantation owners to capitalism which would have really irritated them because the South, the South and slave owners were not free market people. So for instance, uh, George Fitzhugh, who was the Southern writer, he was an interesting guy because he loved slavery. He thought it was good for people, especially um, basically stupid people that couldn't make their own decisions. And he included in this, not only black people, white people. He thought white people should be slaves too because there were just some people who were dumb and, and couldn't, I mean, it's, it's kind of an Aristotelian natural slave argument, but he called free market doctrines, quote, tainted with abolition and at war with our institutions. Uh, He said the South must throw Adam Smith and Ricardo and company into the fire. And he said political economy, which may be summed up in the phrase laissez-faire, let alone, was but a false philosophy of the age. It was at war with all kinds of slavery. And um, it was this idea of capitalism and, and free market competition as chaotic and, 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 at, uh, and opposed to the well-ordered uh, slavery. And, and he was 
a lot of his work was based on Thomas Carlyle, who was a Scottish historian and social commentator. He blamed the economic decline of the British West Indies on emancipation. He called economics a dismal science, which is a pretty famous phrase that still is sometimes applied to economics, a rueful enterprise, which finds the secret of this universe in supply and demand and reduces the duty of governments to that of letting men alone. And he says that economics has joined itself to the sacred cause of black emancipation or the like to fall in love and make a wedding of it, to yield dark, extensive moon calves, unnameable abortions, wild coiled monstrosities, such as the world has not seen hitherto. He thought that slavery kept order and West Indian black, this is a quote, West Indian blacks are emancipated and it appears refused to work. The Southerners were not fond of capitalism or the free market, to put it mildly. If we follow his arguments start to finish and go all the way through, under the assumptions that he states at the beginning that slavery made this country wealthy, slavery is part of why our country is the way it is. So if you take that line and you follow it all the way through and you look at the American South today, then I guess I would argue that it should also follow that that same region should still be a prosperous, well-off region in our country today. And I think looking at the American South, that is not true. There's this idea that keeps coming up and, I, and it's related to sort of reparations that slavery made white people richer and poor and black people poorer. And no, it makes everyone poor, black and white alike, with a few exceptions, the people directly profiting from it. Yeah, slavery is inherently unproductive for a variety of reasons, in addition to its moral problems. It also divorces resources into making sure people don't run away, which is a waste of resources. Uh, there's no incentive for um, people who are slaves to innovate or work hard. There's no education, so there's all that human capital that's left untapped. It, yeah, it's just got a whole lot of problems in addition to the pretty obvious moral issues. Final thoughts on Matthew Desmond and capitalism. I think he makes an argument and fails to back it up. And that's an argument based off of an interesting data source. I think he spends a lot of time trying to convince you of two things. He spends quite a bit of time first trying to convince us that the United States is a certain way, which whether that is true or not remains to be seen. And then the second thing he tries to convince us of is that all of it can be traced almost exclusively back to slavery. And just because two things are bad or two things are terrible, awful, you know, history doesn't approve of either, doesn't necessarily mean that they're tied together. So I guess my final thoughts on this would be, I would have preferred to read two different pieces. One on maybe plantation economy and how it negatively impacted enslaved people. And then one on modern capitalism and how it affects our society today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left, Right, and Unwanted. Please tune in next time.